As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to From the Rooker End, uh, a podcast about Watford FC brought to you by The Athletic. It's the international break, but we're still here with a very special podcast that really uh, it will get you thinking, I think, about, about your heroes, but not just your general heroes, your cult heroes. I'm joined by Mike. Hello, John. Uh, and Adam Leventhal. Hello. And we are going to talk about an article you've written about a certain player. Now, I'm going to try and be mysterious at this point, but of course, the title and the person of we're going to talk about will be in the title of this podcast. Everyone knows who we're going to be talking about, but but you know it's why are you uh, bothering, John? <laughs> exactly. Why am I here? Uh, but but we, we, it's about him being a cult hero, and you've written an article about Marco Cassetti. But where, how did this sort of come about? What, what is a cult hero for you, Adam? It came about by just basically tracking him down for about a year and yeah. pestering him to try and um, do an interview. And over the last, what, two weeks, we, we managed to nail down a time. So it was really, really pleasing to finally sort of speak to him because I've always sort of had a, had a soft spot for Marco Cassetti. And then it coincided with a series that we're doing for The Athletic, which has the prefix of what is it like to be? I thought that it fitted perfectly with what is it like to be a Watford cult hero? In answer to your second part of your question what is a cult hero it's quite difficult to define but i think that marco cassetti ticks so many of the boxes because i suppose his his distinguished playing style his distinguished facial furniture his his temperament the moments of great and not so great that he had and i think the fact that he also made such a, a strong connection with the football club which which comes across in the piece so I hope I've sort of answered your question there, John. <laughs> uh, Mike, you know, he, he, we will talk about him you know, later on. We're, we're also going to hear from him because Adam recorded the interview. And I've heard that interview, Adam, and there's, I can hear the smile on your face throughout it. <laughs> uh, uh, the fact that you got to speak to Marco the Beard 
Cassetti. But uh, generally, Mike, for you, a cult hero, yeah, Adam sort of said this stuff, and we, we chat about this with the WhatsApp group. It's really hard to find a definition. But what is it for you that makes a cult hero? It is really, really difficult. And I think that's the, that's the answer to the, to the question, isn't it? There is no, there is no set of baskets or, or boxes that have to be ticked because there's a, the Venn diagram is, is quite big, isn't it? It could be a, a hero. And a, uh, I'm waffling. This is how complicated it is. Um, <laughs> but I think it's someone with that little je ne sais quoi, just something different about them, something you can't quite put your finger on, but something just slightly offbeat, but in a, in a good way, if that if that makes sense, someone just sort of a little bit hipster's not the right word because that goes too far the the other way. But someone who just makes you smile, someone who sort of reminds you why you enjoy football and and everything to do with it. Really, it's just it's it's an indefinable quality in lots of ways, and they're all so different. Cult heroes can be different. There can be some who had really distinguished careers. There's there's others that that didn't. And yeah, it's it's a fascinating one to to, to think. About. But I think the best way of something else is someone who makes you smile, perhaps someone that other supporters wouldn't quite understand why you love them so much. I wonder, I wonder if that makes sense. It does. I mean, I think the longevity is, is an interesting thing. And we'll talk about a couple of possibilities soon. But I always think they have to burn brightly, but briefly. Uh, you know, they're not around forever. And you almost have that element of, yeah, yeah, I saw him play. Yeah, I saw him play. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you see him play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw those games. I saw that season. The, the problem with modern world is that you can look back at games and find the DVDs and you can watch them on YouTube. And it's almost like it's, there's a certain mystery that still is around many players, I think, from the past. I know I was talking about the hierarchy of players. You know, there's, there's a legend. You know, and I think it's, it's a phrase that gets overused so, so much. Uh, you know, a good player doesn't make you a legend you know there's something about you know adding significant amount to the club and that's exactly what cult hero doesn't do they add something but not a, not a lot yeah well this is it see this is the problem you see uh john because while you're talking there and i've talked about this venn diagram i've got a, a player in mind who i think is a legend and a cult hero you can't be and, both you cannot well, be I, both well here you go here's a stress test and i think Tony Coton is a club legend and a cult hero because he's a club legend for for what he achieved with Watford. He was absolutely brilliant for uh, a, a long period of time, but also he had that sort of mischievous air about him. We we know now that he's got that incredible sense of humour. Uh, we know that he was um, um, he was fearsome on the pitch, uh, and he's a, a larger than life character off it. He's not your standard nine to five footballer. He was. Uh, loads going on basically so brilliant footballer brilliant servant for Watford of course hanging on for that extra year and they got relegated is a is a good example of that but he had that little that edge to him didn't he sort of I think he was a couple of brushes with um uh not necessarily obeying laws uh the, the, the whole time when he was when he was younger I don't know if Tony's lawyers are listening let's hope not but um do you know what I mean so I think he he could be a, a hero and a legend and a cult hero and there's another one Hyder who I think probably just about could tick over into into club legend, but he he had that sort of slightly balmy sense about him, the way he played football, the way he charged around. He wasn't your standard striker, and then he bustled around. He never looked massive, but then of course it transpired that he had a better hang time than than Michael Jordan. So he he was almost ticking over into club legend, but also a, a cult hero as well. You know, he was called the Puffin Eater and all that sort of stuff, and he just had, he was slightly off. Off beam. A nickname is very important, I think. But for me, the the bit that those those players both had, and this is where cult hero also needs. I think Watford needs to be the top of their career, 
They can't go off to bigger heights. We, we can be theirs on the way down. They have, might have had highs before us, but after us, I don't think they can have heights. And both those players went on to much bigger football clubs uh, and much more sort of success after Watford. It, it's one of those football cliches, uh, and it's very important that we get the f- proper definition, or at least his proper definition, of what a cult hero is. We got in touch with Adam Hurry, who uh, is known as at Football Cliches on Twitter, and he hosts the Football Cliches podcast as part of The Athletic. Uh, and we found out what he thought was the definition of a cult hero. Cult heroism in football is kind of deliberately and conveniently slippery concept. You have to think of it in terms of like a Venn diagram, and you need to fit it into at least one of these following circles. None of them actually involve being consistently good at football, though. The first one is kind of like a superhuman work ethic, kind of this innocent application to your trade that the average punter kind of will really appreciate. That's that's pretty basic. The second one is kind of a mid-range violent tendencies. It's not enough to make you a complete scumbag. It's just enough to, to, to make you look like you're really fighting for the cause. So just general low-level dark arts. Third one is maverick flashes of exotic talent, a, a typical kind of foreign import who plays well for a bit, gets cold and then leaves. That's enough for cult heroism these days. Fourth it's got an innocently playful social media presence. It's quite a modern thing, but um, kind of just sort of re- really innocently um, engaging with the average punters on, on Twitter is always quite a nice thing, um, showing that you're humble and don't take yourself too seriously. Finally, if you simply score precisely once against your club's most bitter rivals, that's usually enough. But if you do go on to score 200 more, then your cult heroism gets taken away because you're just too good. So I hope that solves the equation for you. So my... You've done the classic, you've taken definitions, you've started to put players in, but you're not quite sure. Adam, you've spoken to many ex-footballers, ex-Watford players. How many of them don't tick the box of either legend, uh, fan favourite, or, or, or even the lowest one? Wasn't, what's below fans' favourite, Adam? Former Watford player. I mean, that's not to demean them. You know, you can still be a really good former player, but you just don't have anything necessarily snazzy about you. I wouldn't want to name names, but I think there's probably a fair few from the sort of the 90s that could have been sort of former players, just standard former players without any sort of cultishness about them or any legend status. I wanted to go back, actually, John, because, Mm. Mike, when you were talking about Tony Coton, I wonder whether you can be a cult hero and have and be decorated by the club. Can you be can you be a player of the year on not once, not twice, but three occasions no. and also be a cult hero. No. And I, I get what you're saying about Tony Coton because, yes, he has got a character that is larger than life and has all the sort of characteristics of a cult hero. But it's almost as if, yes, people would have been aware of it at the time that he was an interesting character outside <laughs> of the game as well. But we've almost learned more about that and we've absorbed more of who he was probably since and doing you know doing the tales from the vicarage events and things like that um so i wonder whether we we're sort of we're retrospectively giving him cult hero Mm -hmm. status i don't know here's one then let's let's go to the other end of the spectrum then and this is one that's been sort of percolating in my mind for a couple of days uh xavier gravelin oh all over all over yeah yeah definitely a bit more like do you think because pale skin so he's got a standout character he played (laughs) for a very short amount of time and jason has a Christmas snowman named after him. I mean, that, that's got to be a cult hero. Maybe at least a cult player. But, but Adam, you spoke uh, in another article we did for The Athletic about a certain cult... Is he a cult hero or was it just a cult moment? 
I think you're um, talking about a certain Albert McLennan who had a moment of infamy, didn't he? That we, we've talked about previously on on uh, on the podcast, and I think that yes, he would be he would be a cult hero. Yet, would it be a, a cult moment? Would it just be a moment of unfortunate infamy? I mean, I suppose that the, the interesting thing is that sometimes when you go back and you speak to someone that you are sort of branding as a cult hero, it's always interesting to find out if there are some telltale signs of whether they are actually a cult hero. And I think what defines a cult hero or helps to define a cult hero is whether they have been emotionally invested in the football club themselves. Certainly felt that with with Albert McLenaghan, you know, even down to sort of having the pictures up on the wall and, you know, a Watford cap and, and wanting to go back to the football club and, and being a little bit unsure about how he was going to be treated when he went back. You know, do, do they really like me? Do, do they do they sort of, will they make fun of me? And that also came across with Marco Cassetti as well in the interview that, you know, he wasn't sure after the penalty incident more against Crystal Palace rather than Leicester, but whether they will ever forgive me for that because, you know, we had we had championship football rather than Premier League football. And I think that that shows within the cult hero status that, yeah, they are in, as invested in that period of time that they were at the football club as the fans are that have that sort of glow about them when they think about that player. So I think the emotional connection is is a, just an extra little bit of magic stardust that you need to have had to be a cult hero. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Adam, it's been a while since I've seen Marco. Um, uh, I miss him. Um, uh, you got to meet him. How, how is he doing? How is he? First things first, it was a, it was a joy to sort of sit on Zoom. Obviously, I wasn't there with him, but just to see his face smiling, for him to be sort of engaged in the process, that's always rewarding. I mean, you, you know, we've sat in front of so many Zoom press conferences over the last few months where managers have sat down um, sort of <laughs> sullen faced and going, answering questions about, you know, this and that and whatever. It's always quite fun to be speaking to someone who you're really excited to see and to speak to and relive their memories. Not being disrespectful to Nigel Pearson or, or Vladimir Ivic or anything like that, but you know, you get what I mean. He is back in Brescia, which is his homeland. That's where he was born. Um, he's moved back from Rome. He found the sort of the, the city culture a little bit too chaotic. And he's moved back there, you know, with his, with his wife and his two children who are a lot older now. And it's worth remembering that when he actually moved over to Watford, he didn't come with his family. And I, I suppose that reflects the fact that it was a sort of a, a suck it and see sort of move. You know, he came over via being on loan um, at Udinese and he wasn't quite sure whether it was going to be a long term relationship or not. Obviously, it lasted two seasons, as we know. But now he's you know back with his family and he seems to be enjoying life. And it was quite interesting, you know, during the interview almost sort of stereotypically there was this Italian soundtrack soundscape in the background of you know a, a little rattle of a lambretta just sort of fizzing off into the into the into the background and and occasionally he would sort of have a little puff on his e-cigarette and there'd be sort of a plume of smoke like the exhaust that was coming out of the lambretta outside it was all very sort of 
evocative just watching him and hearing him and, and speaking to him. So that sort of, you know, helped to, to set the scene of, of speaking to him. And I, I started off by asking him about, you know, how it actually came about that Marco Cassetti ended up playing at Vicarage Road. After Rome, I was uh, I was at home still uh, training alone. Uh, my agent with uh, with uh, some teams, but they don't uh, want uh, me too much because uh, I was 35 years old. The last season uh, with Luis Enrique in Rome, uh, I didn't play too much because uh, we have uh, some uh, little problem uh, between us and the other team in Italy. They said. Oh, maybe he's finished. He can't play anymore. Uh, so my my agent talked with uh, with Udinese. He called me. He said uh, there is this possibility if you want. I come in England for ten days. I did uh, prove to test my condition, my fitness, <laughs> my injury, everything. I was okay, and uh, everything started from there. Uh, at the beginning, uh, it was uh, an experience for me. It's a new experience uh, for my life, for improving my English. At the moment, I didn't know too much about championship, just the Premier League, because I was uh, looking the, the, the game in TV, but the championship in Italy, never seen before. No, I like it from the, the beginning. It's a type of football uh, we try to, to do with Gianfranco. We did a little bit different at that time. Gianfranco, we prefer to play this type of football. We did uh, very well in the, the first season. A little bit less than the second, but you know the the, the football is dead. <laughs> the atmosphere, every game uh, was fantastic. Uh, away and at home. At the end, uh, when they finished in England, they said, "Wow, why I don't come uh, early?" But it's always like this for me. At the moment, maybe Premier League, the best league in, in the world. The Championship is not too far. Eh? Second, third place, you know, in Italy is so and so. Spain, <laughs> just two teams, Real Madrid and Barcelona, sometimes Atletico Madrid, but championship is always a surprise. For that, I, uh, I love to watch uh, the game. In Italy now, you can watch Friday games, sometimes Saturday, half past 12, one, two games a week, you can see. You always worry, though, Adam, when a player comes up, comes in, you love them as much as you love them. But actually, they didn't enjoy themselves as much as you hope they did. Yeah. And, and that was definitely something that came through in the piece that, you know, he was very open and, you know, his heart was was very much open. And as you would expect, you know, his sort of Italian mannerisms were always there and he was using his hands to describe the, the connection and and the, the love that he had for not only the football club, but just the whole environment. I think that that really is very sort of vivid in his mind that he was able to come to England and enjoy the, the sort of the freedom of playing football in England because he'd been in the pressure cooker atmosphere of playing for Roma numerous times, competing right at the top of Serie A, almost won the title, was playing in the Champions League as well. And, you know, the, the, the scrutiny that he had in Italy was contrasted to, you know, arriving in, in leafy Hertfordshire, not really being known, playing the level down as well. And, yeah, it was, it was a release for him. He could just enjoy football again. Rome is fantastic. If you win, the top. If you lose, the bottom. 
in England was different. They love uh, what uh, you do on the pitch uh, without the result. Just uh, the performance, just the way you, you can try your best uh, when you can try to help the team. Uh, just this. That I think I have a lot of love from the, the Watford fans. If in Italy I did the penalty in the playoff championship, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I, I must change uh, city. In England, when I came back uh, last year from the Watford Fulham uh, at home, uh, I received a lot of love from the, the fans with uh, no problem uh, for that part, for the penalty. I uh, assume my responsibility for the penalty in, in the final, but for, for me, still now, it's no penalty against Leinster. Eh? <laughs> Without that penalty, that game... Uh, Maybe finish it like a, a normal game. A lot of people they they can see that video. They remember me that oh wow. Tell me why what happened. It's difficult to say. You must live that that moment. So obviously he enjoyed the majority of the time playing in England, but. Obviously, I had to talk to him about two particular penalty incidents. You know, we talked about the, the penalty against um, Crystal Palace, which he, you know, really took to his heart. And he was very worried about, you know, whether the Watford fans were going to remember that when he returned. But I suppose that the more famous one and the one that has a happy ending was that penalty against Leicester. And this is what he said. I can't believe it because, you know, I, I played that year. It was the, the semi-final playoff. We already played uh, more than 40 games in the, in the, in the league. I understood uh, what the, the referee like. The, the referee tried to ref the, the, the game uh, in, the, in the league all the year. The contact never, never whispered before. So uh, I said uh, to myself, no, I can't believe it. He whistled a penalty with just to touch the shoulder a little bit to use my, my body to, to cover the, the ball. I can be, you know, Almunias did his job very well. <laughs> After the, the first save from uh, Almunia, and I saw Knocker to put the, the ball on the net. So Almunia said he put uh, the, the arm and they stopped the ball. I was arriving, me and uh, Joel Ekstrand uh, was uh, together, like a central back. Never think now we can score. Uh, was amazing, fantastic. I saw the people from the stand coming to the pitch. I remember when the, the police tried to, to clear the pitch because uh, the referee said uh, there are 40 seconds to play again. Uh, they tried to put the ball in the in the box. Uh, crazy. Adam, you know, he only had two managers when he was at Watford, which is quite <laughs> yeah. a, a unique thing. But yeah. for him, they were very special managers. He had Zola, of course, who, you know, he, he, he his role really at Watford was to help, I think, define this new Watford with, with Zola. But then he also had Pepe Sanino. He did. And <laughs> watching him watching him talk about that was was very, very funny. Because it's an interesting one, because you're never quite sure, especially when they're a fellow countryman, whether he saw something in, in Beppe Sanino that, that we completely missed and that we had a complete misconception about 
um, Beppe Sonino simply being someone who was very, very shouty, very, very energetic and a little bit crackers at times. But no, he he pretty much agreed with with that um, with that take on on Beppe Sonino, and and ultimately he concedes in the piece that if Beppe Sonino hadn't have been around after that second season, he probably would have stayed longer. Totally different way to to work on the pitch. When I come in England with Zola, he played a lot of year in England. He was a, an English. He's not an Italian, and. Uh, with him, I I understand what is the football in England. No? When I come Sonino, I felt like in Italy ten years before a lot of tactical two hours and half in the pitch to did the the movement like this like this. I try to speak with uh, with Pepe. When he come, he asked me to me, "How do you feel?" Uh, how is the football here? How is the team? Uh, you know. That type of, of question. I say to him, listen, here for me is the paradise. You can ask uh, to the team everything you want. They do. They do without problem. But it's the type of method if you ask. <laughs> it doesn't uh, hurt me. <laughs> and uh, for that, I remember Gianluca Nani was the director. He asked me to stay for the third year. But you know, oh, uh, with Beppe, uh, with for that, uh, I say no. Another year like this, no. If you come in England, uh, an English uh, coach, oh, I can do another year. Thirty-seven. Uh, my family won't uh, want me back because I was uh, I was alone in, in England. Uh, just one time uh, a month, uh, come back at home for a couple of days. It was hard. For that, uh, I decided to, to come back in Italy. You had to ask him about it, Adam, didn't you? You had to ask him about the bid. Of course, of course. That's you know, it's the it's the it's the frame of Marco Cassetti. You know, it is the is the thing that people remember that that wonderful facial furniture. And you know, I, I did actually ask him straight up. You know, did you almost feel that you were a you know a, a style icon when you came? And what came across, and I wasn't sure if he was going to be sort of all full of bravado and all this sort of stuff. He's very humble. And, mm. you know, this is how he responded by being compared to, you know, some, some sort of great style of icons that we know in England. I'm not uh, like a Beckham. I'm not... Uh... <laughs> now I, I feel good with the bird. Uh, sometime a little bit longer, sometime a little bit shorter, but I can see me in the mirror without... Maybe in the future, but I don't think so. Particular signal, no? And the, and the identity and the ID. But do you feel he, he still has a, a connection with Watford, or has he sort of left us behind? I think he does still have a very, very strong connection with the club. And you can hear that in his voice, can't you? You know, that the passion that he, he speaks with. Um, you know, he loves watching the, the, the clips on social media when Dini goal, the goal that he set up, um, for Matej Vidra, let's not forget that, that wonderful assist. He played a big part in that Huddersfield goal as well, which goes around on social media now and again. And he keeps in touch with some of the former players as well. Nathaniel Shalabar, you know, he, he was in touch with him when he came over for the Fulham game because Shalabar had that link with, with Napoli and was learning Italian as well. So they've exchanged a few messages. Troy Deeney as well. Um, Jonathan Hogg too. And also, you know, from, from his point of view, 
he's sort of trying to build his coaching career as well. He works alongside Christian Panucci. They were in charge of Albania for a period of time. He's got his UEFA Pro license. So he's sort of, you know, steadily working his way through and looking for, you know, the next opportunity. And and I asked him about potentially, potentially, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the opportunity for Marco Cassetti to become the head coach of Watford. Imagine that. It's my dream. <laughs> In my dream, for sure, uh, one day we, we will be. I don't know if in Watford or helping Watford, but for sure is my is one of my target to come in England to to manage as a good. Mike, I'm not going to lie to you. I sort of don't want him to come back as coach. <laughs> I th- I think it will ruin it. I've I've, I've never got back with an ex girlfriend, but I, I worry that's what it would be like. Do you know what? <laughs> I, I'm the exact opposite. Just hearing Adam utter those words, then I was off, off my seat, just thinking, "Oh, can you imagine? It'd be absolutely no offence." <laughs> oh, no, I have that play. feeling as well. No, 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 I just it. don't want to ruin it. I know what you mean, and listening back, and I think it is worth all the effort that that Adam went to 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 track Marco down and to to nail him down to to get that chat because what a magnificent, what just lovely to hear from him, wasn't it? On on a load of levels, what I loved about him was. On the, to your, your earlier point, John, was that he obviously holds Watford in such high regard um, and still does. And that's very rewarding to hear as a as a supporter who sort of who loves him as well. But just the way he was sort of so honest about it, it was it, the sort of trajectory, his career, what for his Watford career trajectory was it really interesting. I love the fact that he said he was honest enough to say he'd never even seen the championship mm. before before Watford became a became an option and then how he described you know as as Adam said moving from from Rome where basically it's either you're you're a god or the, or the devil effectively was what he said wasn't it you're either the top or the bottom you're you're either brilliant or or useless to to moving to Watford where we love him like like, like we've been talking about in this podcast we love him for what he did on the pitch and forgave him that 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 the error against Crystal Palace to the to the extent really that most people probably don't even remember it um, and and he obviously appreciates that 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 the English football supporters and Watford football supporters recognise your efforts and and enjoy what you try and do for the for the team and and the badge and I love the way that 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 came through and in talking about Beppe I love the fact that he was he was honest to say I think it, the quote was it felt like it was he was from a decade earlier yeah basically alluding to the fact that he was um, that he was a bit outdated in in his methods. Um, and yeah, what might have been if if Beppe hadn't been around, but also that 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 Beppe used him as help, and he was willing to help him. He described it as paradise, but just just a, a thread of of lovely, lovely stuff, and really nice to hear from him from that cult hero point of view. But and I think that just cements it for me. As as I was listening back to it, I was one of the things I was remem- remembering was. He did seem to have a smile on his face. He seemed content in this chat, and he seemed a, a generally a, a, a happy footballer. And even when I think was it away against Peterborough, he got sent off. I think we we were there, mm. uh, uh, John and yeah. uh, Jace was there. He got sent off quite early on, and he sort of throws his arm at the ref and just runs off laughing, basically, <laughs> just sort of <laughs> yeah, saying, "Well, that's yeah. what a load of rubbish. I'll go and uh, I'll go and have my um, luxurious bath now in my uh, Italian bath salts or whatever." But he just what a lovely, what a sort of a lovely sort of section of of his career it was and how lucky we were to to have it it was it was of course a, a you know a pretty momentous tumultuous um incident packed couple of years wasn't it that he was with Watford for there was plenty going on and that of course helps but just what a what a top guy but aside from all that some real interesting 
nuggets, some real nice behind-the-scene detail of what it was like at that time. So on, on a number of levels, that was absolutely fantastic. Loved every minute of, of hearing from him direct and, and every minute of reading the piece as well. Absolutely brilliant. Lovely to hear from him. And yes, bring him back. If, it's going to be, if you are going to get back with the next John... He's got to be the one, surely. <laughs> you know what? You know what? One one thing that was funny when I was speaking to him, and it sort of it sort of just sort of fitted together as as he was as he was talking, and I was thinking, what? Hang on a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Because he was describing why he and Christian Panucci. I think this is driven by Panucci more than him, but why they don't want to work in Italy is because you know, and it harps back to the the, the pressure that he felt at Roma that you know that you're you only get a short period of time to prove yourself the the owners are very quick to act and they you know they start to sort of in you know bring intense pressure on you if results aren't going your way and you know you don't really get that when you when you're outside of Italy and I did go it is like that at Watford though you do realize (laughs) (laughs) and he he just sort of burst out laughing and he went because he's Italian and it was like (laughs) it was just a lovely moment that he you know, whilst he he got Watford at the time, um, and he was part of a you know a, a wonderful sort of story of of transition, he does also appreciate that you know things haven't really changed at Watford now, and and yeah, it would be a it would be, I it would be a a very very interesting um, combination, and I look it's it's it, it, it's one for the sort of the dreamers to have Cassetti in charge of Watford, but. Just imagine the combination, and we can just we can just dream, can't we? We can dream of having a, a cult hero back at the football club in in some form. But whatever happens, and he learnt this coming back to watch the game against Fulham, he feared coming back a little bit because he didn't know what the reception was. But he knows full well that whenever he does come back to the club, people will go, "That's Marco Cassetti. I love you. I love your beard. I love all these moments." And just you know, it will always be a warm a warm embrace when he comes back. Absolutely hugs all round when Marco is is around. Um, thank you very much for, for that, Adam. It's really fantastic. If you do want to read that article, uh, it's live on the Athletic now, uh, and you can get uh, access to it by going to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end uh, and right there you can sign up for one pound a week as a subscription, which is well worth it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. From the Rookery End, a podcast about life following Watford FC. Uh, another thing, Adam, the Athletic have uh, done this week, and one of their many podcasts that they put out, which well, from the Rookery End is one, is the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, where normally they, they chat to to you guys, the journalists, and try and uh, you know, pick apart some of the big stories from the week. But but this week, um, Ornstein, uh, David, had a, a chat to one Mr. Nigel Pearson. Uh, we got to, to listen to that. You can listen to the whole interview uh, with Nigel on the Ornstein and Chapman feed, uh, wherever you get your podcast. But we, we got it and we cut out the bits, apart from the bits where he talked about Watford. Uh, and this is what Nigel had to say to David about his time at Vicarage Road. What was it like working inside that Watford regime? Is that bad for your health? Because from the outside, it looks fairly chaotic, this hiring and firing of managers. I, for the most part, really enjoy it. I didn't have a lot of, you know, since I left, people expect there to be, make the presumptions that there's conflicts and there's 
argument. You know, there was nothing. I can't give you any answers because I've got no idea apart from anecdotal stories that I've heard that, you know, he just wanted his change and, and see whether the players would react. Well, if, if that's what it is, that's what it is. I can't do anything about it. So yeah. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it now. But, you know, I'm talking about at the time, yeah, I was furious and I was annoyed, of course. But because it was an opportunity for me to get back into the Premier League that I didn't think would be available to me again. So yeah. I, I was very uh, grateful for the opportunity. Hey, it's what it is. I guess in fairness to the the media, those sort of questions and that curiosity is fueled by incidents like hap- like which happened at the end for you, which seemed quite extraordinary that you were denied entry to the training ground and players and staff found out about... Clean, for the deep for clean? For the deep clean. Supposed deep clean. Yeah, possibly. I'm a bit of a wily old dog as well in the fact that I made sure I rang the doctor to make sure, you know, is there a deep clean? No, there isn't. <laughs> um, Craig and I tried to to arrange our practice match then. I said, okay, then we, we, we'll go down to the stadium to train. We couldn't train there because there was work being done to the pitch, which, so I just got in contact with the ground staff and no, there wasn't any work being done. But uh, if you... They were told that if I got in contact to tell them that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't use it. You don't have to be an absolute um, genius to work out that there's something possibly going on. Me being probably seeking a little bit of confrontation made for made sure I got to the training ground early <laughs> so that they had to turn me away. You use your sort of, I don't know, your, your nous to try and work things out. So it's it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, a shock when it happened in the end. Yeah. Although, you know, the, the, the timing of it wasn't <laughs> probably what I expected. But, you know, the stories that came about, the you know, the half-time at West Ham, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't at all happy. A post-match row with Gino Pozzo? I didn't see him. He was at the training ground watching it. He was at the training ground with the uh, sporting director. There was no argument to have. You know, the last time I saw the owner and Scott Duxbury was in the car park the next day so there was nothing said then either and it was especially surprising from the outside because you had posted a couple of wins and got the team into into good contention to survive before the sort of rug was pulled from beneath your feet what mm-hmm. one interesting part was when you came back and we now know for project restart there was a lot of politics there was also your ill health there were positive tests at Watford Troy Deeney obviously a talismanic figure wasn't coming back to training for his own concerns there was a a lockdown breach with players attending a party. Was that chaotic, that period? Because then what followed was a run of defeats. Um, was was that particular time, before you picked up with a couple of victories, a bit of a mess? You, there were so many different issues. It's not about excuses. It's about this. these were the circumstances that we worked in. And however other clubs worked, and it doesn't matter how they worked, because we worked with the scenario that we had, and... A number of our players have got big concerns, and I don't blame them. And I don't blame them. Yeah. You know, but did it have an effect? Well, I think you know, if you look at all the, if you look at all the, the and it continues now. Actually, the number of strange results that you know since restart, even through the start of this, that there have been results that you wouldn't, you wouldn't predict necessarily. So, who knows? how the 
the, the changing climate with, uh, you know, the fans not being there. I mean, I, I think that was difficult for us because playing at home for us was a massive dimension to us. And I think there's a lot of football clubs would feel the same. It's very difficult to predict how the circumstances affected everybody. But, but look, we all had to deal with it. And I would still say that, okay, so the seven games after the restart, we got seven points. So it's a point per game. And over the course of a season, you know, that was only marginally below what we'd been averaging before. It wasn't what we wanted, don't get me wrong. You know, we we expected to do better than that. It was just a, a, a situation which it felt different. People talk about momentum. You had to deal with a situation that was not necessarily what we expected it to be. One specific player I wanted to ask you about, Ismail Lassar. He's had a lot of interest in him in the in the transfer window that's just gone, uh, mm. specifically from Liverpool. How special is he? And also, would clubs come to you and ask for your advice on him? Have they? And what would you say? Firstly, no, I've not. I've not been asked about him specifically uh, in terms of clubs wanting my opinion on on him as a player. My own opinion is. You know, a young man who's very, very talented. There was a part of me that was surprised that he didn't go in the window. But I think if Watford can... And, and they've also been quite canny with Jerry De La Feuze and Maxi Pereira, both at Udinese. So, you know, so that, that there's an opportunity, I think, that if they get promoted this year, that they'll still have retain the services of their best players. And I think, you know, you, you you would look at that as say, well, that's good business, really, if that can be the case. And and I think for, for Saar, for instance, it would be the championship might be a really good experience for him. You know, because it, it, I, th- I think at times there was an awful lot of expectation on the lad's shoulders. I think if they're, they're still doing really well by the, the January window, you know, they'll probably keep him again. And, and he's a very talented boy, but I think it's, I think it's very – I'm always loath to put to build the expectation too much on players like that because they're going to have moments. And he's, he's had some injury issues as well. So I think he's another year acclimatising in the English game, maybe with not the level of pressure on him, might be very, very beneficial for him. But he's certainly a very talented boy. Adam, you were there. You covered every game, every – Instant every moment of of Nigel's time at Watford, um, I you always wonder about when someone will talk not the truth, the full truth, um, and it seems to me a little bit that Nigel is is talking to lots of people for a very specific reason. It's a very interesting one, and I and I I'm not sure whether I would have done quite as many interviews all in one go when you could have probably just sort of chosen one journalist to, to speak to or one publication but he did do a you know a whole sort of junkets worth of, of interviews Nigel Pearson the movie's not coming out is it <laughs> yeah, well, yeah I don't know you know Nigel Pearson and the the wild dogs or whatever it would be called <laughs> whatever yeah. but um yeah there was just a lot of interviews and it, it was sort of quite um pronounced how much Pearson content there was out initially when he when he did the interviews and and you know I thought it was great listening to to Stu James who was one of the carefully selected journalists to go and speak to Nigel Pearson and and he was representing the Athletic and I really enjoyed his piece because it was sort of going at Nigel Pearson's time but also his his life and the you know the challenges that he's had in particular 
you know, losing his mother, but also um, having COVID recently and seemingly still struggling with it a little bit from sort of outside the, the Watford bubble. And then the interview, as we've heard with, with Nigel Pearson, with, with Ornstein and Chapman, was able to just dig in a little bit more on the, the precise details of, of what happened. And I thought there was some good sort of little behind the scenes bits that were sort of conceded, which hadn't appeared in the, um, you know, the, the various publications, interviews that we'd heard before. And I think in general, it is, let's remember, his take on things, just from his perspective. But there is no reason to think that he is saying anything happened that, that didn't happen, or it didn't happen the way that he's saying it. And, you know, he's always been pretty straight when he's been speaking about things. But I think we sort of, we learnt a few things in terms of his emotions at the time, that it was very, very, I, I almost sort of picture him the day after the West Ham game with his blood just boiling, gradually just turning his face redder and redder and redder as, as the, the day was unfolding and he, he realised that he was going to be sacked and the sort of the injustice of the whole thing in his eyes. But you then have to contrast that with what many, many Watford fans, um, you know, however you think that it was dealt with and whether he, you know, it wasn't classy in the way that the club did it and this and that and whatever, the narrative was there. Watford were going down and they were going down with a whimper. The starts that they were churning out in many of the games, yes, they beat Norwich, yes, they beat Newcastle, but they were pitching up and they looked as if they were sort of turning up for a kickabout on the park, especially, and this is the one that really, really got to me. And it really sort of set the tone for the whole of that period of time after lockdown when they came out like a rabble oh, against Leicester. Oh, don't start. Don't. And I just thought... I hated it. It... it it really, re- look, okay, fair enough. People were walking into something that they'd never experienced before. But the bare minimum is to walk out in line and look as if you're up for the fight. They did all right against Leicester. And that was probably one of the better performances post-lockdown, let's be, let's be honest. But I just thought, come on, what, what is going on here? Something's missing. And I think from, from what Nigel was saying in, in a lot of his interviews, yes, there were a lot of contributory factors. Um, I think personally, it would have helped him if he'd been a little bit more honest about um, what was going on for him personally in terms of his illness. I think the club as a whole could have, you know, been even more transparent. And I think it would have, it would have helped personally. I think that would have, you know, been better. But then I can also understand from the point of view of someone that's, you know, he's he's quite stubborn and he's quite sort of stoic. He didn't want to sort of be seen as as someone that was, you know in inverted commas, weak and, you know, suffering. And he wanted to sort of set, set an example. So I can see both sides of the argument. But what, what interested me from when he was speaking in that interview to sort of contrast the two things, at the time he was upset with how it was um, playing out with the Premier League and sitting in a lot of meetings and feeling that things were a little bit, they, they weren't transparent enough and people weren't being upfront about the fact that, come on, look, we're just getting on with this because we have to, because we have to save football almost. Um, even if it's not necessarily the safest thing to be doing. So he wanted more honesty on that side of things. And now I sort of have learned more about what was going on with him. You know, he missed the Brentford game. We were told, no, 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 it's nothing. Speaking to Craig Shakespeare in a press conference, everything okay with Nigel? Yeah, 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 he's fine. Come on. You know, you, you have to have it both ways. If you're asking for honesty on one side, you also have to be honest on the, on the, on the other side as well. And I, I think that that's what sort of, came through with, with that 
you know, interview with, with Ornstein and Chapman, and it's really worth having a listen. And then, you know, rereading the Stu James piece as well. And then also rereading the piece that I did back when he was sacked, which also fills in some of the other details. And you can almost sort of pin it up like um, Carrie Matheson in Homeland and sort of have all the bits up on the wall. And then we can work out in a year's time when we try and find out definitively exactly what happened and piece it all together, the bits that are missing. But all in all, it was really interesting <laughs> hearing <laughs> from him. It was his perspective, and I don't necessarily think that it, 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 it will have changed the minds of Watford fans in terms of whether he would have been able to do anything differently in those final two games. I think people will think if he had been in charge for the Man City game and for the Arsenal game, Watford wouldn't have come any closer to, to staying up. And that was the perception outside of the club. How can you sack someone with two games to go? You know, this is Nigel Pearson. He's had a great record, bloody, bloody, blah. Well, that wasn't the reality, and I think we all I think we all know that. So I wish him genuinely wish him all the best. And I contacted him outside of the interviews and all this sort of stuff to wish him well on a human level. I wish I hope you're well and you know yeah, I, in your recovery and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And and that was done. But on a football side of things, you know he's put things out there, people can respond, and I, I think it's all part of the as he and he used the phrase as well in the interview and sort of you know he, he says he doesn't really like it, but. You know, we've had Nigel Pearson in the the rich tapestry of of, of Watford Football Club, and it, and it's it it was a fascinating episode. Didn't end well, and there was a lot of serious things going on. But you know, it was a, it was an interesting tale at the end of the day. Mike is Nigel Pearson or Beppe Sonino a cult manager? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> I reckon Beppe definitely is. Definitely. Think, just just for the Beppe. lining on his his suits. Yeah, he had his initials sort of yeah, etched into his, into his cuffs. So he had plenty of going on, didn't he? He had, uh, yeah, so he's a cult manager. And, and yeah, the sort of curious case of, of Nigel Pearson, I think had he kept us up and then rode off into the sunset, then he probably would have been a been a cult, uh, a cult figure, a, a cult uh, head coach. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> but but just, just to finish off on that, it was, it was fascinating to hear from him because Adam, as Adam alluded to, he has done a lot of interviews and we've, we've read the piece that, that Stu did with him, which was of the athletic, which was obviously great, and there's been, been quotes all over the place. But interesting to to physically be able to hear hear him, and 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 it does remind you that he's he does come across as very articulate and calm and considered. And over the most part of the piece, it didn't sound like he harboured any ill will towards Watford, despite as Adam saying he sort of mapped out that day where he tried to get to the training ground, then tried to get to Vicarage Road, and was sort of foiled at every every turn. It was sort of quite quite a, sort of vaguely amusing for for us, I suppose, to imagine Gino Pozzo and Scott Duxbury behind a tree at his next destination, <laughs> stopping him from, from doing what he Is he coming around the corner? Is he coming around the corner? Yes, yeah. duck, duck! <laughs> Barrier down. <laughs> now! Um... <laughs> So, but just getting that sort of detail, you know, all joking aside, was was interesting. But I did, and, and, he, and he, you know, he is softly spoken, and like I say, he didn't seem to harbour any overt ill will towards Watford. But I did think his his tone did harden slightly when he talked about the West Ham game, and I think he mentioned that the Gino was watching the game from the training ground. He wasn't at the London Stadium, so dispelling any rumours of a bust-up with, with the owner, either during or after the game there. You know, he was at pains to point out that he, uh, Gino was watching the game with the direct technical director, I think, which I'd take to mean uh, Filippo Giraldi. So there was suggestions that it was a bust-up there. So I thought his tone hardened a little bit when talking about that particular incident but then he went on to say how that he was cross 
like the rest of us were. Fascinating to to hear from him, as as Adam said, and as we said when we spoke to to Stu uh, in the last podcast. We wish, on a personal level, wish him nothing but well. He's been obviously been through a tough time. Um, it's been a tough time for everyone, and, and none more so than him. So, on a human level, all the all the very best to him. But I think we're ready as as Watford supporters now. It's been a fascinating sort of period, uh, you know, to hear from him again and to and to try and piece some of it together. But they are sort of it's still quite open wounds aren't they you know we're still sort of dealing with the fallout of, of relegation and um so it's quite a difficult listen but well, but well worth it it's um a great a great written piece and a, and, a, and well worth tuning into Walsing and Chapman to to listen to as well fascinating as always the podcast of course free wherever you get your podcast from as this podcast is but you can get them ad free uh, by going to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end uh, and the three podcasts we mentioned not only ourselves but also the Ornstein and Chapman podcast and football cliches uh, you can get ad free on the athletic website and app thank you very much for your time Adam and thank you so much for sharing that interview uh, with Marco Cassetti uh, no problem and uh, just if anyone wants to drop a comment in the podcast on the athletic with someone that they would like to be interviewed in the future mm. let's get that conversation going some other sort of cult heroes or some just some former players <laughs> you know, whoever it's it's always good to know who people would love to hear from so yeah nice one who's top of your list michael for that one what for cult players yeah to, hit, to speak to yeah oh that's a really good question mine's still glenn hodges by the way glenn hodges so glenn if you're listening um what about dave bamber Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, similar, similar era. It's not too much of a jump from Glyn Hodges. Maybe we could do we could do it a double date, John. Me and you take Glyn Hodges and Dave Bamber out for a uh, for a uh, delicious meal. You're paying. Uh, we'll be back with other podcasts uh, about life following Watford FC. But please make sure you follow us on social media uh, and do tell your friends to subscribe wherever they get their podcasts from. Come on, you all!